From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. There's this thing that happens when we start letting people into a group who were previously excluded. People who we thought were just too different from us. And it doesn't really matter what kind of group it is. It pretty much always happens this way. There's a resistance from those in the group who are afraid that allowing people in means pushing other people out. But that's not usually what happens. Because it turns out that inclusion creates more space for everyone. And that's the story that's playing out right now when it comes to girls and autism. Long after it was recognized that autism exists on a spectrum, a really broad spectrum of behaviors and characteristics, there wasn't much space on that spectrum for girls. They were simply thought not to be autistic nearly so often as boys. But what was being missed was that autism doesn't respect lines of gender and sex. But as a condition of some nature, probably, and a whole lot of nurture, almost certainly, and also some not-so-good old-fashioned sexism, girls were misdiagnosed or even more commonly not sought out for identification at all. When this started to change, some people worried that opening up the characterizations that classically excluded girls might somehow make it harder for boys to get the help they needed. But that's not what has happened. Because as it turns out, there are a lot of ways in which our evolving and more inclusive view is helping everyone with autism better understand themselves and their place in this world. Teresa Gabrielson and Katrina Hahn are two of the five authors of a new book aimed at diagnosticians and other researchers, to be sure, but also policymakers and educators, social workers and teachers and others whose work intersects with the autism community. And that's pretty much all of us, come to think of it. The book is titled Assessment of Autism in Females and Nuanced Presentations. Teresa Gabrielson, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And Katrina Hahn, welcome to you. Thanks. It's so good to talk to you. Teresa, this book examines autism characteristics that may be different than expected, even by people who specialize in autism. And a lot of these characteristics just so happen to present more frequently in girls. We're going to get into the reasons why that might be momentarily, but I was thinking perhaps today we could start with an example. What's a characteristic that girls with autism especially exhibit, which has been broadly ignored in the past? The first one that comes to my mind is imitation. So as we think about classic autism or what we've learned about autism over the decades, we are looking for someone who does not imitate well, especially in early life. They're not imitating others, therefore they're not learning same things other people are learning. But we have found in the girls, imitating is actually perhaps a superpower. It's something that they put so much effort into um, that it looks as uh, looks as if they're passing. For example, they're trying to imitate what other people are doing in order to be accepted. But for a long time, it was thought that this was a condition that affected boys much, much more frequently. Katrina, let me bring you in here. Why was that? Well, kind of um, 
it's uh, I think it's the medical model that things are uh, men are usually the ones that are um, evaluated, paid attention to for things like say strokes or heart attacks. It's the same with autism where the um, the model and the way to look at it was based on what they saw in boys and girls weren't really considered at that time. This is such an important point, I think, that a lot of things present differently in women than men. So it shouldn't be shocking to anyone. Yet, yet somehow people struggle. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what is this meant in, in lived experiences for girls when a way that can help contribute to a person's identity and their understanding of themselves and their quality of life isn't available to them because the structures that we've set up to tell them, yes, this is part of you or no, this is not part of you are skewed against their gender. Um, what we've learned in our just immersion in the first person literature over the last three years and in talking with people in our own research is that they have been searching for help for a long time and searching everywhere for it. And as they reach out for help and autism is not recognized, but something else may be, um, it might be anxiety, it might be depression, it might be compulsions, um, it might be ADHD. So these things are recognized and then the standard treatment is applied. But because the provider or the therapist um, or the teacher does not ex understand how this woman's brain works or how this girl's brain works, therapy is not super effective. And so they are seeking help. They think they have a good path. It doesn't work. They become disaffected. And they try it again with somebody new and they get a new diagnosis and a new therapy. And if you go through that enough times, it becomes wearing. And we've had some women say, I just can't stand to have one more, one more professional blow me off. And it's not her fault. It's their fault because they're not understanding what it is exactly that she needs. Teresa, you just mentioned that this book includes a lot of first person accounts. Katrina, can I ask you, as you decided to dive into this subject with your collaborators and as you and your collaborators began asking for these stories and sharing these stories, it seems like the floodgates open. I mean, you have so many quotes from so many different women speaking to their experiences, largely those experiences of being ignored and not listened to. Yeah, it's true. It's it's nice that women can finally speak and be heard and that their experience can be taken seriously um, as part of the uh, literature and looking in and trying to understand instead of just looking to the diagnosticians and the researchers to tell us what it feels like and what it looks like to be a woman with autism. We have women actually giving us firsthand reports of what they've been going through and how they um, have had a hard time adjusting to life as everybody else that's neurotypical knows it easily. As you're collecting these reams and reams of information, these all of these life stories, is it just sort of heartbreaking? I mean, this is clinical writing. Um, but 
the humanity of the people that you're working with and advocating for really comes through in this, which is something that I appreciate a lot. I don't figure that happens without a few tears shed along the way. Oh, absolutely. Just heartbreaking stories. Um, The thing that actually started me down this path was some original research at BYU where we were discovering kind of an anomaly where we're picking up a lot of autism traits in women that we weren't expecting. And so as we pulled on that thread and did more research and bringing women in, we were blown away by the suicidal thoughts and behaviors in this population that we we had no idea was happening. We had no idea there was this much distress. And it may or may not be showing on the outside, but it was so prevalent on the inside. And there's a whole chapter in this book that's dedicated to the mental health struggles and uh, suicide, uh, suicidal thoughts and, and suicide attempts of so many of these women. Do we know if those um, coexisting problems happen in greater rates, different rates, they're differentially presented than they are in men? So if I can take that one, um, there, and, and granted, everything that I'm going to say is in women that we know are autistic. Okay, so there's there's also people we don't. But in the women that we know are autistic, there have been some population-wide studies in Europe of suicidality. And it's kind of shocked everyone to find out that autistic females have higher suicidality, including deaths by suicide, um, next only to neurotypical males. Um, Neurotypical males have the highest suicide rates. Autistic females are just below neurotypical males, and they're higher than neurotypical females, and they're higher than autistic males. So the message is the level of distress is so much higher, Um, even compared to their autistic male counterparts. Autistic females have higher stress leading to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. One of the challenges that you and your collaborators have suggested needs to be overcome is the standardized measures that are used to guide the assessment of autism and not just the measures, but also how those measures are interpreted and how they need to be adjusted for girls and women. Can you talk a little about that? Okay. So the measures are good. We're not saying that they're not. Um, In order to interpret them correctly, all psychologists know that you need to understand the normative sample and the normative sample is primarily male. (laughs) So these measures that have cutoff scores and these are the scores that indicate autism or not autism are all based on primarily male samples. And there was one great study done a year or two ago that looked at all of autism research and found that males were eight to one, eight females, eight males to every one female in the samples, which is double the actual prevalence data that we know of as four to one. 
So it's people will excuse it as a male biased um, measure by saying, well, of course, there's more boys or more males with autism, but but no, it's a lot more exaggerated than that in autism research. So we have to understand that these cutoff measures are based on male biased samples and then put that into our interpretation of a score, realizing that in the very few measures that have gendered norms, where we know that this is what the female cutoff is and this is what the male cutoff score is, we know it's always lower for females. Even in the general population, autism traits are lower in females than males. So that pattern is very consistent. It's just not reflected in some of the cutoff scores that are heavily male biased. And as for language, Primarily, the children that are referred with concerns for autism have poor language scores or poor, they're having a hard time communicating. But girls, when they're younger, um, that end up getting a diagnosis of autism, often have very typical language development. And you have to dig deeper as a speech and language pathologist. You have to ask more specific questions at more open-ended questions. Um, and it's always important. I think every speech and language pathologist should always include a measure that looks at social and emotional development or pragmatic language because parents and the patients, they know what's going on. You just need to dig a little deeper than what a normal language assessment would do. You write about one girl who took on the role almost as like an investigator, a scientist who was examining her friend. She became hyper fixated on it, but that looked from a distance like neurotypical socialization. But what she was really doing was hyper fixating on things just like a, a maybe a classical presenting boy would, but in a way that is not perhaps as familiar to people who are trained to diagnose in an, in this more classical way. So one of the things that's really, really clear in the research literature is that if you compare an autistic girl to an autistic boy, she's going to look much different. In fact, she looks more different than any other comparison that you're going to make. And so people think, well, she doesn't look like this other autistic student or child that I know who happens to be a boy. Therefore, she doesn't have autism. If you compare her to a neurotypical boy, she's going to look a lot like a neurotypical boy in like intense thinking, deep thoughts, systematic thinking. Um, and some of them describe them. Some of the women describe themselves as like, I think like a boy. Um, but if you compare her to a neurotypical girl, that's where you're going to see, oh, she's really different. This is a whole different framing, right? And the framing makes the result. Like you'll see girls at the playground. Girls will be flitting. Girls with autism, um, they might look like they're having, they have lots of friends because they're flitting from group to group to group to group, talking to somebody for a minute and then escaping and then talking to another group for a minute. So they look like they have lots of friends, but really they can't stay with one group and have a strong conversation or stick with one thing? Um, because they don't really understand the play as well, perhaps, and they want to be included. They don't know how to insert themselves like the other girls. 
um, usually are are trying to do. And this this plays out even into adulthood, like not knowing how to enter a conversation, um, really wanting to and using the tools that you have available to you to try to enter the conversation. But just over time, not being successful and thinking that there's something wrong with you. This is what's taking the mental toll and the sheer effort to try to camouflage or imitate somebody else, especially when you don't know what's going on underneath, um, becomes exhausting. Just it wipes them out. And um, Matthew, I can speak to this directly. Um, (laughs) I've always thought that I was a neurotypical person. And then after finishing working on the book with Teresa and the other um, collaborators, um, I I remember writing an email to Teresa probably at two in the morning. And I think I said something like, oh my gosh, I think I have autism. (laughs) And uh, then she... um, she was very gracious and she gave me some advice about who to go to to get a diagnosis and to determine whether or not everything that Teresa was just saying was who I felt like I actually was. And sure enough, after going to get a, an evaluation, I found out that I also have autism. And uh, now as I'm trying to remove all the masks that I've worn all my life and trying to become authentically me and not the me that is trying to fit in everywhere I go. It's been a big struggle. Yeah. I, how big of just, I mean, there's a word that we would use in not polite company. Um, it's a mind something. <laughs> <laughs> Katrina, how big of a mind something was that for you? I mean, cause you're deeply immersed in this and it's not until you're in the middle of being immersed in this that you go, wait a second. Wait just a minute. A total mind thing for sure. <laughs> Cause you know, I consider myself, I, I have focused on autism for the majority of my career. I work in an autism diagnostic clinic. I feel like I know autism, but, um, yeah, it kind of blew my mind and I, and it really widened my, um, idea of who we need to consider and who we need to value opinions and thoughts because shoot, if I can be an autism specialist and not know anything about my own autism (laughs) is a, it's a good idea. And it's because you were so deeply masking, right? I mean, you would, you would made masking part of your being and it's hard to separate once you've done that for decades upon decades. Exactly. And so, uh, so disappointing that I wasn't who I thought I had, but like I really considered myself the social butterfly and like really friendly, outgoing. And then the more I started to look at my core self, I realized all of those things I was doing were exhausting me, wearing me out, making me feel inadequate. And I would always have a really hard time um, moving from one day to the next sometimes it would just the sensory overload is so hard when you have autism that you're not taking care of yourself. Teresa one of the really eye-opening things in this book for me was the chapter on the developmental and medical issues that face 
biological women and the recognition that there has been very little research into how women with autism experience things like menstruation and pregnancy and menopause. And then there are these additional things that women face more frequently than men, even though, of course, they shouldn't. But that includes things like sexual violence. And you and your collaborators have pointed out that the experiences of these things for women with autism can be very, very different than it is for neurotypical women. So, and there's a distinction there too, Matt, because if you know you're autistic, you are better informed about all of these co-occurring medical conditions. If you don't know you're autistic, you may not be getting the care that you need. And and yet again, you're being blown off or not listened to. So it's, you, you heard me mention like the higher number of genetic differences in mothers who are females who are not showing the signs. The genetic research hasn't quite caught up with all of this, this wave of autistic females that we're finally starting to see. And I have to say that school psychologists and psychologists all over the country are being inundated right now with referrals. So people are starting to become aware and starting to seek help. Um, Just like with the suicidality, when we discovered how incredibly high that was, um, I have also been struck by the number of women I know Um, with medical conditions that are in many cases debilitating, um, that don't necessarily come to them because they have autism, but they're just part of their lives and experiences. I'm I'm having a hard time coming up with a single example of someone that we have worked with or someone that I've diagnosed or someone that I know that doesn't have something else, um, whether it's medical, whether it's um, early, earlier or more painful periods, whether it's difficulties with pregnancies, um, it could be just difficulty walking, there's, there's autoimmune conditions, like it's an unending list of things that further complicate your life. Um, that may or may not be associated with your autism, but they're just so highly prevalent. Um, And I think the more we know about autism, the better we can get in some of these healthcare conditions as well. Katrina, given your experience, do you now sort of walk around the world looking at people and wondering, oh, I wonder if she knows? All the time. Yeah. (laughs) in the grocery store, when I'm evaluating a patient and I'm observing the parents, like everywhere I go, I think, do you know who you are? Or if I, I I, um, read an article recently that was talking about how um, it was kind of an advocacy paper. And it was talking about how people with autism or neurodiverse people, um, it's been their responsibility to be as neurotypical as possible because it's a neurotypical world, but it's um, neurotypicals that have empathy, apparently, just based on what we know, and that neurotypical people should be meeting people that are neurodiverse halfway, and they should be finding ways to make 
adjustments and changes in their lives so that the people that are neurodiverse in their life can also have an equal footing in that relationship or in that space. Um, and it also talked about how people with autism are very empathetic uh, for other people that with autism, like they understand intrinsically what that other person is struggling with, the other person with autism. And so maybe that's part of why I just feel them so deeply because uh, we feel each other, I guess. That's Katrina Hahn and also Teresa Gabrielson. They are the co-authors, along with Kay Kavina Begay, Kathleen Campbell, and Lucas Harrington, of the book Assessment of Autism in Females and Nuanced Presentations. Katrina Hahn, thank you. Thanks so much, Matthew. And Teresa Gabrielson, thank you. Thanks so much. The book we talked about today is definitely an academic book. If you'd like to learn more, but you feel like you might benefit from a text that is intended for a lay audience, there are quite a few good choices, including books by the autistic authors Sarah Hendricks and Bianca Topes. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.